Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. One of the most important skills for a person to have is self-awareness. It improves our relationships, it helps us pursue the goals that truly matter to us, and it supports us in growing and changing for the better. But as I said on an episode of the podcast just a few months ago, self-awareness might be the single biggest challenge in the world of personal growth, because it is both so essential and so difficult to see ourselves clearly. And I even questioned during that episode whether it's possible for us to become more self-aware. Well, today it's time for me to eat my words a little bit because we're (laughs) going to be focusing on self-awareness, including how we can maybe, just maybe, become more self-aware over time. So to help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist. He's a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you feeling about this topic? I feel it's perhaps the foundation topic for truly being well. Yeah. With it, all problems are solvable. Hmm. Without it, no problems are solvable. (laughs) (laughs) A slight exaggeration, but pretty close to the truth. Yeah. And it's something that you can really develop over time. And we're going to talk about that. Okay, well, great. Well, that's maybe a a point of distinction between the two of us. It's not that I don't think it's developable at all. I just think it's really hard to do it. And that gets me into the first thing I wanted to ask you about, which was about working with people in therapy. Yeah. And you obviously have a longtime clinical background as a a clinical Mm -hmm. psychologist. Did people generally walk into the room when you worked with them? Being fairly self-aware, of course, nobody's perfect, but fairly self-aware about what their underlying problems were? Or was that something that, in general, really needed to be cultivated over time? Yes. What I mean (laughs) is that sometimes people come in to different therapists for different reasons. I had a general practice seeing adults, couples, families, and also kids. And sometimes people would come in because there was a practical problem that it was very clear to them, for example, how to navigate parenting, co-parenting with an ex, or what to do about the fact that they just felt a loss of purpose in their life after the kids left home or they retired. That was pretty clear. Or they knew they had a drug issue or an alcohol issue that they just had to deal with. Other times, yes, often people come in with this sort of vague miasma of misery, like, ugh, and I'm not making fun of it. This is poignant. This is real. This, uh, And they didn't know why they felt the way they did, or they didn't know why they tried to do some things and they hadn't worked. So definitely that's where we start, but it's certainly not where we end. And Hmm. I guess a little bit, I'm in the candle business. (laughs) So you're talking to a guy who has seen the evidence again and again and again of the benefit of bringing light Hmm. to situations and bringing light out into what had previously been the shadows. Well, that's a beautiful metaphor to start with. And there's this common idea in therapeutic practice of what's known as a presenting problem. There's this thing that a person knows that they have to deal with on some level. They're having an issue in their life that's bubbling up to the surface. But that presenting problem is often a manifestation of much deeper issues that that person is facing. They've got something that's beneath the surface or in the darkness, to extend your metaphor yeah. there, that you need to bring a little bit of light to. Was that also something that you 
saw pretty regularly where somebody might have an awareness of a surface issue, but there was some deeper thing that was revealed over time that you needed to draw their attention to? Sometimes what would happen for someone is that there would be a revelation of some sort Mm -hmm. in which they would become aware of what they had not yet been aware of in a way that was really freeing. And Mm -hmm. a story in my case that you've heard me talk about is that roughly in my mid-20s, I had the revelation, the realization that growing up, I had been a nerd, but not a wimp. And it was revelatory when I realized, and I became aware of the facts that, no, I'd actually been a dork, I'd been a nerd, but I'd not been a coward. I had not been Mm. a wimp. One of the interesting things that comes up for people is realizing their own responsibility, Mm. which is a kind of self-awareness where you start to recognize, wow, yeah, good news, bad news, or rather bad news, good news. Bad news, it's your responsibility. To a large extent, good news, it's your power to make it better. Mm. And the two go together. So this might seem kind of abstract. I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of details here. But you can see immediately that this topic of self-awareness is indeed foundational. Mm -hmm. I'll say one more thing here that's beneficial. People grapple with issues, right? There's issues. Okay, was I a nerd or a wimp, right? Or (laughs) was there a, what should I do better as a parent, you know, to to raise our kids. Okay, there's also this process of self-knowledge for its own sake. Mm -hmm. As we gradually expand the, the light that moves out into the shadows of our interior, people feel more whole, they feel more integrated, they usually feel a lot better and more at ease and at peace with who they are. Yeah, I think this is a good moment to talk about some distinctions around self-awareness, different kinds of ways that it can show up for a person. And there's a classic distinction between internal and external Mm self-awareness. And we've mostly talked about internal so far. This is knowing your own values, your tendencies, your thoughts and feelings, all of that stuff that is internal self-awareness. And then external self-awareness is typically more relational or social in nature, where you have an awareness of how you're perceived By other people. So, to give an example of how these can be different for somebody, I might have an internal awareness of the fact that I'm an extroverted and sociable. And often, which will probably not come as a surprise to podcast listeners, quite a chatty person. (laughs) And then, and so that's my conceptual or internal self awareness. Then, my external self awareness is having a moment when I'm in a group of people and we're all talking about something. And I'm able to do a moment-to-moment scanning of my behavior where I can look at it almost as a spectator and have a moment where I go, hey, Forrest, you're probably taking up a little bit too much of the air in the room right now, and it's time for you to toss the ball to somebody else. So that might be a helpful distinction for people in terms of the different ways where they can be self-aware. Right. Can you... Look at yourself from the inside out and from the outside in, including through the eyes of others and including taking into account what's it like for them to be with you? Yeah, to be around you. Totally. That's a really useful thing, especially if you occupy any position of privilege in society, right? Yeah. Maybe I'll talk here for us if it would be helpful about different kinds of self-awareness, particularly internally that internal form. So now that you've made that distinction from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Two big categories, yeah. Yeah. So one, think of granularity of mindfulness in real time. How acutely can a person discern 
in a time scale of quarter seconds or even tenths of a second, what's going on in their own streaming of consciousness? That's the time part. And then if you think about space, the full breadth of the mm. stream, the swollen river, really, of consciousness with all its flotsam and jetsam. Mm. How granular can a person detect subtle, subtle shifts of mood, intention, perception, bias, expectation, presumption? So first question is, how acutely can a person really, really be aware of themselves? Mm. Second, how much awareness can they have for everything, including things that they tend to not be very aware of, maybe due to training or culture, or because they're really leery of certain things. They don't want to be aware of that part. So mm -hmm. for many people, full self-awareness is not particularly about tracking your thoughts more effectively, because people are in their thoughts and they're thinking about their thoughts. You know, they're in it. But what about your body sensations? What about these somatic markers, to use the term from Antonio Damasio, that you can discern, activate for half a second, two seconds, maybe as the underpinnings of an emotional and cognitive reaction mm. to somebody or something? How much can you mm. be aware of that? How much can you be aware of just the kind of tidal ebbs and flows of mood deep down inside yourself or the activity of these deeper, younger parts of yourself that are calling out with unmet needs. You know, I'm, how mm. aware of that can you remember? Okay, that's the second thing. And then a, a big third one is people are often caught up in situations, a lot of early psychoanalysis is essentially about this one thing, in which they're actively repressing parts of themselves, repressing, yeah. suppressing. Totally. And they're trying to hold them down. They're trying to keep them at bay. And it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like wrestling <laughs> a whole bunch of twisty kids, you know, trying to keep them in position. But, you know, they're, they're active and they're coming forward. And it takes a lot of energy to keep them at bay. And then it can create conflicts mm -hmm. with others mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. with certain other people, they might tend to speak to that part of yourself you're trying to keep at bay or name it, and like, oh, which then pushes us into denial or with other people, longings are stirred up in which parts of ourselves that we've kept at bay suddenly want to now rush forward because it seems like there's such a nice person finally who sees me and wants to talk with me. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're like, oh no, don't reveal that. Okay, so there's this active dynamic process of repression, suppression, that's really quite mm. real. And then just last, there's the question of not so much the stuff that's in the periphery of awareness or kept at bay in active processes that a person might be dimly aware of, but then there's the question of what is genuinely unconscious. Mm. And a fair amount of therapy and a fair amount of growth in general is to become more open to truly unconscious material to allow it to come forward more, whether it's through engaging our dreams, which is a wonderful vehicle for getting in touch with what's genuinely unconscious, or becoming more alert to what has just started to break the waterline. I think of, let's say, this unconscious chunk of you is like a big submerged log with one bit of one leaf barely breaking the surface of the stream of consciousness so you can kind of see it, especially if you have good granularity of mindfulness. And so then you kind of tug 
on that leaf gently, gently, mm. and then you get a hold mm. of the twig, and then you start working the twig, and you get more and more in touch with that piece of repressed material in yourself. Yeah. Oh, now I've got a real branch here, and eventually, aha, the log comes into view. This is a great way in to talk a little bit about some of the reasons that I think it's so hard for people to become truly self-aware. And one of those big reasons is everything you're pointing to here, Dad, about the nature of the mind itself and the nature of the way in which we interact with our own psyche, right? Because yeah. I've got mixed feelings about Freud in general, but we'll we'll use his model of the mind for the moment because it's a convenient metaphor around this idea of there's the conscious, and then there's the subconscious, and then there's the unconscious. But I basically just want to take the concept that our self-awareness, or our psyche broadly, has layers to it. Yeah. And we're aware of many of those layers, unless you are just a total sociopath, or, or you have no interoception whatsoever. Everyone has some degree of awareness of their interior, pretty much. Yeah even very young children. You can ask them pretty sophisticated questions about the nature of their experience, and certainly once they're past three, five, seven, eight years old, they're able to answer those questions in pretty sophisticated ways. So we might be aware of these surface layers, but we're often far less aware of the deeper ones. And sometimes people can even get a little trapped by their own self-awareness, where they've gotten halfway down so they think they're really aware about a process, but really there's all this stuff that continues to exist underneath it. So we can kind of bait ourselves into the false belief that we've become really fully aware of something when really we're still inside of our defenses, essentially. And that defense structure and the pain that's associated with self-revelation for people sometimes is, I think, a major block to self-awareness. Because you you pointed to something there, Dad, when you were talking, where People often go through a typical process with this, where let's imagine a kid. You see a kid running around on a playground. Kids are self-aware, but they're not really self-monitoring. They're just being what they are, right? They're running around, they're interacting with other kids, they're expressing whatever true nature is for that individual in that moment in time. Okay. And then we have a revelatory moment where, as you were saying earlier, something is brought to our attention. And this realization is often pretty painful because the thing that's generally brought to our attention by people we're interacting with is not always pleasant. It is not always something that we're super happy about. It's often attached to a lot of shame and self-criticism. And then that shame and self-criticism has some kind of defense that emerges around it. People's defenses really vary. Some people repress whatever that material is, and they say, okay, I'm going to push that outside of my awareness. Other people go into extreme over-monitoring and anxiety and self-consciousness about the issue. And then there are probably a hundred other coping mechanisms, but those are two big categories of them. And we typically have to get through that self-consciousness problem to get to a point of true self-awareness of an issue. And the big battle for a lot of people is getting through the defense that's attached to mm -hmm. the initial moment when they had the blink of the self-awareness light turn on, and that light became tied to pain and shame and self-criticism, and then they need to get past that to actually work on the issue. Does that more or less track for you, Dad? Oh, completely, and yeah. you're quite a Freudian. Uh, you're <laughs> right there <laughs> talking I don't, about... I don't know how I feel about this, but... <laughs> <laughs> Inner conflict. Yeah, inner conflict, yeah. So multiple parts. 
mm-hmm. conflict among them, yeah. dynamic relationships among them, and a major process of defending against experiencing mm-hmm. certain things. Defense. Well, I totally co-signed that, yeah. Yeah. One of Freud's most famous cases was a young woman, and she had a kind of paralysis in mm-hmm. her hand that was called a glove paralysis in which she couldn't move and didn't respond to painful stimuli, like being poked with a needle in portion of her hand that did not correspond to the neural architecture. In other words, the nerves sort of moved through the whole wrist area, but for her, it was like there was a line that was drawn. It was like a, she was wearing a glove. It was clearly psychogenic in its origin. Mm. So he did analysis with this young woman, And it eventually became clear that while she was living with her abusive, tyrannical father, taking care of him in a very deferential way, situated in the social structures of the time, she wanted to slap him. That was the repressed impulse in her. But she couldn't do that. She couldn't slap him. That would have been a total violation of her role. It would have brought down all kinds of bad things upon her. She couldn't slap him. So psychogenically, she paralyzed her hand and desensitized it as a way to manage that inner conflict. Mm. Paralyzing her hand was a solution to a problem Mm. as she experienced it. Now, that's a very dramatic example of a defense, Mm -hmm. the paralysis being the defense, the defense against an underlying impulse, Mm -hmm. right? Even a very understandable one. Most of the time when we broaden in self-awareness, it's much more incremental and Mm -hmm. bit by bit. Also, a lot of the time, what we become aware of is good news. Mm. Yes, to some extent, we get in touch with our pain. And as a subset of that pain, there could be feelings of shame or worthlessness or appropriate healthy remorse. So sometimes we do get in touch with that. But very often, what we get in touch with is neutral, informative information, right? Mm -hmm. That's actually useful, pragmatically useful information about ourselves. Or we get in touch with aspects of ourselves that are really, really sweet and good. Mm -hmm. That's a real important aspect of self-awareness. Like, I'll ask you. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll take turns here. I don't know. I I have a story queued up. Is there anything that you got in touch with? through self-awareness, that for you was reassuring, a relief, good news? I know. I'm not totally sure how to answer that question, to be honest. Well, this is the first in the podcast. You've never been unable to answer a question. (laughs) And also that pause was really long. So this immediately, for me as a therapist, and I'm not going to therapize you, Forrest, fear not. It's definitely on the air. I'm not going to therapize you. But for me, I, I smell blood in the water. Like, oh, yeah, I'm a therapist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm I mean, leaning into know. this one big time. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 maybe, God, maybe this is, maybe I'm just wrong about this, which I'm open to be. I, I don't feel like that's where the pain points are for people. I think the pain points are around dealing with things that they need to change, not embracing like positive aspects of their personality. But that's maybe because that's where the pain points are for me. Because like I'm happy to embrace the positive. Well, I think maybe that's an issue. Yeah, hey, there you go. I'll, I'll definitely say my clinical experience, 80% of what there is for people to recognize about themselves is good news. 
ish on average. Maybe twenty percent is how they could be more skillful. Wow, really? Yeah, really. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's my clinical population, but that's yeah. totally my experience. Well, okay. Well, then, sure. Let's let's roll with it then. And if I could just go a step further, and knowing that and framing it that way makes the journey, the path, a lot easier to take because you're usually expecting that what you'll be discovering is good news. And so you're much more willing to keep going. That's a totally fair piece of advice, because I think that if people are deeply concerned that every time they peer inside the mind, all they will find is demons, then clearly that is a big disincentive to peering inside of the mind. So there's probably some some real usefulness here in positively reinforcing. And that's a common view. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Your assumption's yeah. really common. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, obviously I'm coming to this as not a clinician. So I'm not having the experiences that you're having in terms of sitting in front of people. I'm just engaging with my own content. Yeah. And hey, maybe we've just found like a story that I tell myself that I'm becoming now more self-aware of here in, in real time, which is this idea that like I'm on some level, I don't know what the right word is because I don't want to say like conceited because I don't think of myself as being conceited, but I, I think of myself as having positive qualities. I find those pretty easy to access. If anything, mm. I feel like I need to be very careful about not over-attributing positive mm. qualities to myself. And so that's something, probably because I got a lot of feedback when I was a younger person, around people feeling like I was a little big for my britches in various mm. ways. And because I'm extremely socially valenced, I developed a fair amount of sensitivity around that. Yeah. So, so my self-monitoring processes mm. are often very tuned to being very careful about tone and not overclaiming my own knowledge and being very sensitive to how I'm being perceived as too much of a knower by other people. And it even comes through on the podcast from time to time where... As longtime listeners will know, I proceed almost every comment with some version of I think or kind of or sort of or maybe. And that's sort of my way of softening that. So maybe a little self-awareness is peeking up in this moment about my own process. But to honor your question, I think that's something that I've become increasingly self-aware of is my own positive motivations hmm. in terms of almost a pushback to that. Being where, no, I'm I'm really not trying to show somebody else up. I'm really not trying to put somebody else down. I'm just sharing for the sake of sharing when I'm being a big, extroverted, chatty person in the space. And I'm doing it from a real place of positive motivation. So that's something I'm aware of in, in the heart aspect of it that is really great because it helps me not feel, in quotations, like a bad person, a phrase you hear a lot during this sort of stuff, yeah. about those tendencies. Wow, I'm glad we're talking about this. For all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I got super real there. <laughs> yeah, a couple things. So, yeah. And then I'll tell you my little story, maybe as an example of this. So, first, what you're describing is a very common that mm. a person assumes that the revelations will be mainly upsetting and sad and painful yeah. and hard. Yeah. And occasionally that is the case, usually it's not. Usually some are, but most of those things we learn about ourselves. They're all useful, and mm -hmm. totally the great majority of them often have this feeling of they're reassuring, they're a relief, they're self-accepting, it's good news. Second, it is true, it's a reasonable concern that we don't become too big for our britches. I think I get that. <laughs> sure, yeah. I would also say that in terms of the distinction you made about two ways to know ourselves, from mm -hmm. the inside out mm -hmm. as we experience ourselves, and also from the outside in as others see us, in my view, there are are certainly some people who would be really served 
by being more aware of and more focused on their impact on others and how others see them, including in pragmatic ways, in particular situations. But in general, I believe that most of us, and that's definitely been true in my own history, have been excessively regulated and muzzled Mm. and playing small based on the anticipated reactions of the audience out there. And much of the time, the truth is, those folks out there, they just don't care about you. That's Mm. bad news, good news. Yeah, no, no, you're totally. just a big yeah. player and they're a bad day. Yep. <laughs> and so to your own self be true. Okay. Quick story for me. I've written about it. I was Rolfed, form of deep tissue body work mm-hmm. when I was about 22. You probably know where I'm going with this story. And the fifth session involves your guts, you know, your mm-hmm. belly. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have all this repressed pain and sadness and sorrow and horrible feelings of inadequacy. Oh my gosh. And my rolfer was a very mechanistic kind of person. Uh, She just was there to move the meat around. Okay. So I go into the session with a lot of fear and dread. She starts working on my gut. And then what gets released? What gets overwhelmingly flooding me was love. Mm. And with that was the revelation of, oh, yeah, that was repressed. Mm. Love was repressed a lot because I withheld it from my mother mm. in my painful, poignant you know, struggles with her, which to this day, I feel, even though I was just a kid when I was doing it, I feel sad about it. Mm. Somewhat uh, definitely remorseful for the impact on her. Yeah. So that would be an example. Often what people get in touch with is, as you said, their underlying good intentions, their underlying sweetness and sort of positive blessing orientation toward the world, their wish that others be happy, their wish that others not suffer, they get in touch with that. They become aware of abilities and talents and skills that they had just sort of taken for granted and habituated to because they're familiar and tune them out increasingly. They get in touch often Mm -hmm. with really neat aspects of themselves, kind of quirky, spunky, feisty, funny, different parts of themselves. They get in touch with abilities they may have pushed to the side or they didn't even realize that they actually had. They get in touch with those kinds of things. I want to highlight a key point that is implicit in everything that you've said so far, which is that we don't want self-awareness to make us more inhibited. The goal is for self-awareness to make us more free. Yeah, And of course, In some ways, awareness of a tendency that's a little problematic out in the world requires a degree of the inhibition of that tendency. But often what you're doing when you're inhibiting that problematic tendency is you're allowing other more useful, more positive, more helpful tendencies to become more free. And that's the goal, you know, whatever that, that true nature is that I was talking about toward the very beginning about the kid running around on the playground, Mm. letting that part of you out in a more full and complete kind of way. And so this was, for the record, a entirely unplanned part of the conversation (laughs) that I think ended up being in many ways totally revelatory. But it led us to that, I think, really critical point, which is this idea of freedom, where a lot of people think Mm. that self-awareness is about 
repressing our negative tendencies. And I totally framed mm. it that way for starters. And I think that you made a really important point there, Dad, when you're just highlighting now there's so much, there's so much good stuff in there that it's important yeah. to become aware of too. In a way, what we're getting at is a classic question of what is human nature? And <laughs> you know, are we fundamentally saints or sinners? Yeah. Which wolf is in charge inside us, et cetera. And the fundamental view that I have, and I think is supported by just a ton of evidence, is that within the underlying nature of ourselves is a movement toward, toward integration and health. Hmm. And where I think Freud did get it wrong as a creature of his time is this view that was very Victorian in his era that what's underneath the surface, the id so-called, was savage. Animalistic, uncontrollable. Yeah, really needed to be managed by the yeah. superego with the ego, more or mm -hmm. less, trying to negotiate between the excessive demands of the superego and the upwelling. A lot of problematic metaphors here about the wild versus civilization, yeah, all this yeah. stuff that starts popping up in Freud's oh, time work. Of colonialism. If you look even just a yeah, yeah, if you look even just a little bit below the surface, and these are some of the the issues that I have with Freud that I kind of alluded to earlier. When <laughs> you just see relics of that, I think back in my uh, grad school. I went through grad school. Gosh, when did I do it? Late eighties, nineteen eighties. And I was reading a lot of material there about theories of child-rearing. And a lot of them just viewed the child as this nasty little savage mm -hmm. that needed to be frustrated and punished and controlled mm -hmm. so that— Controlled the, or civilized. Yeah, yeah, the child would gradually internalize the superego, as it were, of the parents or the culture and then regulate themselves. And that was the view. That was the view. Mm -hmm. And there's so much about it that's totally wrong. If you just look direct experience— when you take care of people's basic needs and you don't hassle them and you let them flourish in their own way, who do people naturally tend to become? Gentle, interested, caring, friendly, pretty decent, pretty self-regulated kind of folks, usually. And it's the exceptions to that that really mm. stand out. But the rule is this natural movement in us toward health and sanity and yeah. lovingness toward others. And I think that mm. that's an important thing to appreciate. And in a way, recognizing it for me gives us courage and strength to stand up against mm. the forces of callousness, atrocity, brutality, exploitation, racism, and all the rest mm. as aberrations from our true nature. Well, that's really interesting for starters and is a good framework for some of the stuff that I would like to take a little time to focus on now because I would love to return to that structure of you have an awareness of something, you have some painful experience associated with it, you cut it off in some way, that cutting it off prevents you from becoming self-aware in a useful way. Maybe what you're becoming self-aware of is some positive trait that you've pushed down for a variety of reasons, as you were saying, Dad, the example of pushing down a sort of natural lovingness because you don't want to give it to a certain person at a point in time. Or if the thing that you're becoming aware of is some maybe slightly more problematic tendency that you need to apply a bit more top-down monitoring to, or you need to pick up at the root for whatever reason. And in that moment of the cutoff is where I think a lot of the interesting questions about how to become more, more self-aware are, because there's this critical moment immediately around the time that self-consciousness 
kicks into a person's system where they become self-critical, overly punishing about the nature of the thing, as opposed to being able to accept it fully and address it in whatever healthy way exists for a person to address something. So what does the person do to limit the pain that's associated with the self-criticism or self-consciousness? And that gets to a lot of the defenses and repression and so on that we were talking about a little bit earlier. And that makes a lot of sense when somebody's dealing with a more painful or a big air quotes negative tendency that they might have. But it's a little bit less obvious when, to your point, Dad, we're talking about positive tendencies that we're pushing down for whatever reason. What do you think causes people to repress the positive aspects of their nature? Wow, it's so good. Well, a couple of things here. I want to restate a key thing you said and just highlight it, which is for all kinds of reasons, often because of messages we got growing up, what our culture says today, we feel like there are parts of ourselves including feelings, let's say, or vulnerabilities in us that are best pushed down into the basement and locked away. Mm -hmm. And then once they're locked away, we have less and less awareness of them. We forget that it was we who put them there and had the key, right? That's definitely one thing that's true. And a lot of the healing journey is to come to terms with what we've pushed away and in a way that's tolerable become more willing to experience it. In other words, we've pushed it out of the field of conscious experiencing and to heal, we need to experience it out. We need to let it flow through us while being experienced usually in a very accelerated kind of way yeah. on the way out the door. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's definitely a major source of lack of self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. Another major source though is just being busy, being numb, <laughs> being preoccupied with other things. You know, if your focus is intensively on verbally saturated task doing, you're just going to not be so aware of your nonverbal, somatic, imagistic aspects of yourself because you're just distracted. You're over here with that. And that is actually a major, major source of lack of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And the other is just people who are not very mindful. Mm. They don't have very good, just real-time granularity of, of self-awareness. The other thing that happens, I think, that's very real for people is that they are identified with habitual ways of, mm. of seeing, mm -hmm. thinking, and doing. Totally. And yeah, William James described us, well, he said, most people are bundles of habits. Mm -hmm. And when we're in the habit, it's almost trance-like. Mm -hmm. We're caught up in the trance. We don't really notice it. And it's only when we actually get a little distance from it that we begin to recognize what's actually happening there. Yeah, And that's another major reason why people lack self-awareness. Mm -hmm. It's not so much a deliberate repression yeah. or disowning totally. of some aspect of themselves. They're just caught up in a habit, a way of being and thinking. So these are more maybe normalizing and less dramatic, but significant ways of talking about the causes of lacks of self-awareness and therefore what we can do about it. Yeah, and just to add an additional one that I was thinking while you were talking, painful experiences can cause people to cut off aspects of their nature that are positive just in the same way that they can cause aspects of their nature that are more problematic to emerge. It goes both ways. Yeah. You could be yeah. a beautiful child 
being nothing but loving and joyous out in the world and still get punished for being that way. Because there is some aspect of that part of your nature coming forward that for whatever reason your parent responds poorly to or you get punished for at school or whatever. So there are plenty of tendencies that people have that look like these really beautiful traits in adulthood that get essentially punished out of them in childhood. Yeah. And, and I want to highlight that because I think that when we talk about self-awareness, it's easy to make this sound like a developed skill and more self-aware people are good and less self-aware people are bad. And if you lack self-awareness, it means that you're just not very thoughtful or you're not very good at this thing. Having more or less self-awareness, it often has very little to do with how much effort a person has put into self-awareness. I mean, sometimes it does, but a lot of the time it doesn't because some people have just gone through experiences that were more challenging that cut them off from their interior in more profound mm -hmm. ways. And it's really right. appropriate to give people a break for that, frankly, and to give yourself a break for that if you're somebody who went through those kinds of experiences. In included in that is dissociation. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Yeah, people, it's an adaptive response in the trauma, the crisis of the moment to dissociate from it, to go away from it mm -hmm. and become unaware of it. I want to go now to your question, which is very poignant. Why do we lose touch with mm -hmm. the best in ourselves? What are some of the ways that happen? And thinking out loud about it, and I'm very interested in what you would say when you look back on your history or what mm -hmm. you see about other people. Yeah. One is it's other people. Other people convince us yeah. that certain aspects of ourselves don't exist. Yeah, I'm I'm not generally a behaviorist, but around this kind of stuff, I am a total behaviorist. I think that we get uh, positively reinforced by a lot of different things towards some problematic parts of our behavior. Yeah. And I think that we get negatively reinforced away from some really lovely parts of our behavior. Beautiful. Yeah. That's a deep summary for us. Yeah. People can almost make a little list themselves as a self-help thing. I go, oh, reinforcements of negative things inside myself. What can I do about it? And then punishments for good things inside myself. Oh, what can I do about that? Classic example of this in the in the culture. And so as I've shared about in the past on the podcast, I come from a dance background. It's a major hobby for yeah. me. Go to, or in the past, pre-COVID, pre, uh, pre I went to probably 15, 20 events a year where you spend a weekend going to a hotel, hanging out with a bunch of other dancers, doing competitions, all this different stuff. Major social activity is drinking. Drinking gets very positively reinforced by that community. They're not deliberately trying to cultivate alcoholism, but there's social circumstances. You're hanging out at the hotel bar and somebody says, hey, can I buy you a drink? It's kind of tough to say no. It becomes a, a social interaction thing. And so there are a lot of different ways in which negative habits get positively reinforced without mm. anyone trying to be mean or without anyone trying to be cruel to you or hurt you or anything. They're just these little things that tend to pop up. I'm getting value live hmm. <laughs> <laughs> from this inquiry. Just feeling into one path, one way, other people punish, suppress the good within us is because when they detect that in us, especially when we're maybe a little younger than them or we have less power than they do, when they detect that in us, it makes them uncomfortable inside themselves. Oh, yeah. Yep. Because they've repressed that inside themselves. And being aware of that in you gets them on the edge of becoming yeah. more aware of that yep. in themselves. Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So they 
and this is again a common dynamic, people manage their internal conflicts externally by getting other people somehow to be different. Another aspect is based on social roles. For sure, yeah. In other words, let's suppose a... You're a boy and Oof, someone yeah. as beautiful in yourself is you're, you're sensitive, you're aware, you're really kind toward other people, you have a lot of feelings, and that doesn't fit the social roles. And it makes other people uncomfortable, let's say, yeah. when you're that way. Or flip it the other way, you're a girl and you're full of passion and power, and you do not suffer fools gladly. You have, yeah. you know, you're not quickly compliant. And well, huh, that too can violate you know, classic gender roles. To use myself as a personal example, I am absolutely the person you're describing there, Dad, where mm. I have a lot of tendencies that I think one would describe as in our social Western culture as being traditionally feminine in mm. terms of my relational style with other people, a lot of the ways in which I in- interact, and so on. Of course, this is very much stereotypical gender norms, all disclaimers aside, but still, mm. this is just the way in which in Western culture we often present these things, yeah. which is a very false way of thinking about it, but You know, it's what people internalize when they're kids. And there was a lot of me not really wanting to accept that for a long time because of the stories that were attached to that about what that would say about me. Mm. When the truth is that all it says about me is that I am a sensitive, caring individual. (laughs) Yeah. As to your point, our positive (laughs) traits. Yeah, wow. Oh, no, right? Uh, Yeah, you're in touch with your emotions. Ooh, bad, bad on you. Yeah, uh, can't have that. So, Anyways, I I think that these are all great things to highlight. I do want to move a little bit just out of a a sensitivity for time and the people listening to this toward a certain amount of what can we do about this, including the ways in which we can cultivate more self-awareness over time. And I began the episode by saying that, okay, yes, we can become more self-aware, but it's really hard for all the reasons that I talked about so far. And I would love to give you, Dad, an opportunity to talk about how you've seen people cultivate more self-awareness. It's a huge subject. Uh, well, actually, uh, nah, nah. <laughs> what I mean is it is our nature to be whole. Think of a young child, fully expressed, fully aware, maybe without a lot of verbally informed insight into themselves that they can talk about, but they're whole. And then as time passes, one part of themselves after another gets disowned, repressed, exiled, put in the box, cut off. And they then end up being, to me, metaphorically, if you imagine the vast domain of each of us as individuals full of all these provinces with a sort of kind of capital that's the roughly coherent and somewhat stable executive, core executive, call it ego, process, they end up withdrawing from their vast estate to this tiny little gatekeeper's cottage Mm -hmm. on the very edge of their wall and peering out through the windows, just waiting for the barbarians to invade, freaked out about what might bubble up from their own interior. I mean, that's, that's really common, right? Yeah. So it's of our nature to gradually reclaim the totality of who we are, to gradually become more aware of what's happening in the provinces, maintain appropriate executive function while operating much more like a genuine democracy rather than some kind of tyranny, some kind of paranoid tyranny. So it's of our nature. Second, 
being in touch with body sensations, mm. super foundational, mm -hmm. really easy to do. What's it feel like to breathe? Tuning into your interior sensations. It's a major foundation. That's a really good way into it. Another way into it is to become more mindful. Do a little bit of mindfulness practice, a little bit of mindfulness training, and start being aware of impermanence. Start being aware of the dynamic changing processes inside you that are happening really quickly. You're not judging it. You're not trying to change it. You're not trying to increase or decrease anything. You're just trying to be aware of what's happening really quickly. Another thing you can do is to start having some guesses about what you may have pushed away and really listen to it. Really mm -hmm. invite in those parts of yourself. And a good metaphor here is given in a, the title of a lovely book I read in grad school a long time ago about doing psychotherapy. It was titled Psychotherapy, The Art of Wooing Nature. Mm. It has a lot of levels to the meaning. And the visual there is that your kind of core executive self-knowing process is sitting by the fire. And out there in the shadows on the edge of the woods, surrounding this clearing in which you are, these various creatures are coming to the edges and watching you. Are you going to shame them? Mm. Are you going to attack them? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to welcome them? Can you rest in a welcoming spirit there, sitting by the fire, wooing, wooing these subpersonalities, these younger parts, these less verbal parts, these more primal, id-centered parts, more archaic parts that are in the psyche of all of us as the psyche evolved gradually over 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system, your inner lizard, your inner mouse, your inner monkey, among other parts, can you welcome them to come forward? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those would be three right off the top that I would emphasize. Yeah, tuning into your body, becoming more aware of rapidly changing events in your own stream of consciousness, and having a hunch about parts of yourself that you want to welcome into the light. Great place to start. And I'm trying to think about this through the lens of how I've become more self-aware of some of my own tendencies and what worked for me, what was that process like, understanding that I feel like I've been at this for a while, but I'm only 34 years old. I'm sure that I am not all the way down to the bottom of the basement yet. And I still got a lot to make aware inside of my own consciousness. And what immediately comes to mind is this phrase from the Buddhist tradition, and please correct me if I say this incorrectly, Dad. I believe that it's gradual cultivation, sudden awakening. Yeah. Which for me is a beautiful articulation of how this process works most of the time. And I think that my reticence about asking, huh, can people actually cultivate deliberately greater senses of self-awareness? is I'm not sure what the first stone is that gets us into the gradual cultivation part. Once the cultivation starts, the awakening can happen, but I don't know what it is that gets me to seeing this thing on the edges of my consciousness, where I'm just beginning to become aware of it, where I can then start wooing it forward to use your language. Yeah. And I'm trying to think about that like actively right now as we're recording this. And I, I don't have a great answer for that question. But there's some questions that might be useful for people. One of the things that's been helpful for me is to ask, what am I worried that I am? Mm -hmm. 
And then attached to that, I think that a major resource for me has been increasing self-compassion and self-acceptance, which has really opened the field for self-awareness and becoming increasingly skeptical of the more self-punishing voices inside of the mind. Because even though a lot of what we find inside of the mind is good news, it's often good news that's covered in something. It's covered in shame. It's covered in self-criticism. It's covered in some painful experience that we want to forget. And we need to be well-resourced. We need to be confident. We need to feel sturdy. We need to nurture ourselves if we're going to engage with that, that painful, often difficult material. And I think that one of the things that maybe has led to the, the movement toward gradual cultivation for me has been greater kindness to myself and a greater mm. movement into feeling internally resourced in a lot of different ways. And as I've increasingly felt that way, that process of self-awareness has become much more accessible for me. With people out loud about them and for myself, there's some major questions. One is, you know, what do I really want? Mm. Or what do you really want? Mm -hmm. Or what would it look like if you got what you really wanted here? Mm. Right? So wants, deeper wants, really, really important. That's a good question. Another one is, what am I feeling? A lot of people have, it's technically um, alexithymia. They have a hard time talking about their feelings. Yeah. And for some people, there's a genuine neurological issue, but very often we're just not used to it. But there's an inquiry. What am I feeling? emotionally, not what I'm thinking, what am I feeling emotionally underneath it all? And, and especially uh, with a sense of sensing down into your own interior, sensing down what's underneath it. What's the want underneath the surface want? What's the feeling underneath the surface feeling? Classically, what's the hurt mm -hmm. or frustration or anxiety that underlies the anger? Another one is, what am I pushing away? Mm. What am I holding at bay? And related to that, what would really make me squirm? Mm. What would be uncomfortable to reveal to this other person or to reveal to myself? Yeah. Those are good questions. We've mostly explored the very murky part of this whole conversation, the, the murky underbelly of the psyche, these, these deep things we can become aware of. Sometimes what's really helpful to become more aware about is what we're actually doing out in the world. Hmm. Because people are very self-deceptive. I'm very self-deceptive. And for me, one of the things that's really supported me in increasing my awareness, particularly around behavioral things, is trying to do whatever I can to move towards something resembling objectivity. Understanding that, you know, Objective to who is itself a very complicated question. But asking yourself a real question about how much time are you actually spending on fill in the blank? Because hmm. people will say, oh, I'm spending a lot of time doing this or doing that, or you, other person that I'm in a relationship with, are not spending enough time doing X or doing Y. Well, how much time are you actually spending? And it's often remarkable how little sense people have of how regularly they are sticking to this habit that they want to cultivate or how much mm. time they're spending working on this thing that they want to do. 
For me, when I started tracking uh, my workouts as a small example, it was revelatory to me because mm. I realized that I thought I had been working out X times a week when really I had been working out a very different number of times a week. Less, that was a much smaller, smaller number. number. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. anything that you can do to move away from your often rose-colored glasses prediction of what's going on to what might actually be going on, it can be super helpful and very revelatory for people. And I think one thing that really helps people is to sustain present moment mindfulness, mm. sustain mindfulness, because so often we start sleepwalking our way through our days. We are that bundle of habits. We're in a kind of a trance state. We just sort of go along. And that's not much self-awareness. To be able to have this, it's interesting, the root of the word for mindfulness in the language of early Buddhism, sati, has its etymological roots in memory. Mm. There's something recollected. Can we be recollected as we move through our day? And if we're recollected, as it were, through our day, we're typically much more in touch with ourselves in real time. So that's another thing I would really just try to bring a shout out to and to gradually bring ourselves back to the present when we notice that our minds are wandering. Mm -hmm. We've gone on autopilot. People go on autopilot a lot, and just keep waking up, keep waking up, keep waking mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Sharon Salzberg has this really nice metaphor about this. She says, there you are in the meadow, full of self-awareness, maybe meditating away, maybe just doing your thing, but you're your way. And every so often a train goes by. And some of the time you'd notice the train and it just goes on by. Other times you suddenly find yourself on the train. <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes or 100 miles down the track. As soon as you realize you've been carried away on the train, though, right there, bingo, mm. you're back in the meadow. Yeah. And it's that recollecting, that returning again and again and again that gradually builds up the trait of being self-aware mm. steadily mm -hmm. in the present as you move through your days. Great point. And I think that we're beginning to come to the end here. So if there's anything else you'd like to share with people, now's a good opportunity. I'm going to share a very useful, kind of corny, 60s <laughs> psychological <laughs> method that people want. And maybe, maybe Forrest, you'll do it yeah, and you'll yeah. report I'm, back. I'm your guinea pig. I, I know this is something Elizabeth would be all over, where basically you get a piece of paper, fairly large, you know, 12 inches by 18, when it's kind of larger, maybe even bigger than that. And you just imagine that this piece of paper represents the whole of you, your whole psyche. Mm -hmm. And then just start kind of drawing on it a little bit, maybe with colored pens. It's okay to use words. It's okay to make little pictures and maybe have this area in it that's loosely associated with this kind of core executive process. And then you have these other parts. And then over there, you've got the tree of wisdom. And here you have the cave full of deep jewels and inner treasures. And then over here, you have a, a bar, a party. Everybody's whoop-de-doo over there. These are all just parts of yourself. These mm -hmm. are aspects mm -hmm. of yourself. And you use this as a kind of exercise to acknowledge and explore all of who you are. Mm -hmm. Not getting uptight. It's not an art project. It's okay however you do it. And you might populate as well this vast domain of who you are with different characters, you know, and you just all this sort of stuff, all of who you are. That's kind of a sweet, fun exercise. I think it points to 
maybe a, a final thought to leave people with, which is when you're engaging in this process, becoming more self-aware, opening up the basement of the mind, however you want to talk about it. A really useful question to ask yourself when you're pushing for a little bit more awareness of a certain issue of one kind or another is, on behalf of who am I doing this? And for what purpose am I doing this? Mm. And what's run underneath this conversation, I think, is this really important point, which is that people often put pressure on us to become more aware in their mind of what they Ah. think our problems are. And it's really easy to get caught up in that and, and bow to that social pressure. So it can be helpful to return to, again, that question, for who, for what purpose? Yeah. And sometimes we do need to apply more of that external monitoring awareness in order to get along with other people in useful ways in the world in pro-social ways that are actually good fundamentally. But sometimes people are just trying to inhibit us through increasing that self-awareness. And again, we return to that core idea, is this making you more free? Or is this making you more inhibited? And for me, that's been a very useful question to return to over and over again. What a fantastic summary at the end here, Forrest. Well, thank you. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Yeah, well, today I had a fantastic time talking with you about how we can become more self-aware. I think this was just a really wonderful conversation. Yeah, me too. We covered a lot during today's episode. It was one of my favorite episodes of the podcast that we've recorded recently. And I began it by asking Rick about his experience in therapy working with people over a number of years. I asked him if people generally walked into the room with an awareness of their issues or if self-awareness was something that really needed to be cultivated over time. And he answered, yes, for most people, there was a level of awareness of some issue that brought them to therapy in the first place. People generally go to therapy because something is not going well in their life. But then alongside that, there were often deeper layers of self-awareness that did need to be developed. And this is consistent with something that's known as a presenting problem, which shows up a lot in therapy. People will often walk into the room because they're dealing with some kind of a specific issue. But that issue is really a surface-level problem that is concealing other deeper issues. And this points to why self-awareness is so challenging to cultivate in general. The metaphor of an iceberg is often used to talk about uh, Freud's model of the mind in particular, where you have the conscious mind as the little bit above the surface, and then you have the subconscious, and then underneath that you have the unconscious aspects of the mind. And we could be aware of many layers of the mind, but sometimes our awareness up to a point deceives us into thinking that we're more self-aware than we are actually. We feel like we've gotten all the way down to the basement when really we're just on the second or third level. We then made an important distinction between different kinds of self-awareness, particularly highlighting internal self-awareness, which is an awareness of our own values, tendencies, thoughts, feelings, sensations, all of that good stuff. And this is distinct from external forms of self-awareness, which I like to refer to as self-monitoring, really more a moment-to-moment scanning of our behavior that, to use myself as an example, prevents me from talking way too much during a conversation. 
which of course is still something I'm guilty of from time to time. Rick really highlighted something throughout the conversation, and it came to a head about halfway through it, where he asked me, Forrest, what's something that you've become more aware of that was a positive quality? And I really struggled to answer that question because my whole framework around self-awareness was that, well, isn't the stuff that people struggle with the more negative aspects of our personality or our problematic tendencies? I mean, doesn't it make sense that that would be very painful to become aware of? And therefore, we're repressing that awareness in a variety of different ways, or we have all of these defense mechanisms around it that are preventing us from becoming more aware. And this was one of those times during the podcast where my dad really blew my mind a little bit, because in his experience, most of the time when people walk into therapy, I think that he said something like 80 90% of the time, what people struggle to be aware of is the good news, the positive aspects of their personality, of their character, of their self, their wholeness, however you want to talk about it, that they've pushed away over time, often as a response to external pressures. And becoming aware of this and leaning into it, leaning into the idea that when we delve into the mind, we often find good news there, is just a great thing, a great idea to have access to because so much of the time people are afraid about delving into their psyche because they're worried about all of the demons that they're going to find there. So it can be a really helpful pushback against fear and self-criticism to become increasingly aware of the positive parts of yourself, your personality, that you've disowned over time. I then presented a loose structure of awareness and the lack thereof, where often we begin blissfully ignorant, frequently as children, of some tendency that we have. Then there's a moment of painful realization where somebody brings something to our attention and we go, ooh, that doesn't feel great. And then this leads to some kind of self-criticism that this doesn't feel great is because there's shame associated with it or intense negativity that we direct toward ourselves. And I think that shame in particular is one of the biggest blocks that people have to self-awareness. And then in response to that pain, people cope. And they cope in a lot of different ways. Some people cope by becoming extremely self-conscious and anxious about whatever the revelation was, where they engage in a hyper-monitoring of it. Some people really repress it. They totally push it down to the basement of their awareness. Some people swing super hard the other direction. And you see this, for instance, in people who have narcissistic forms of behavior, where that's often rooted in a deep lack of self-worth. So they compensate by presenting themselves as being overwhelmingly filled with self-worth. And all of these defenses get in the way of true self-awareness because self-awareness almost always involves a layer of self-acceptance. Not to say that you're just going to let things go on as they have always been forever and ever, but you need to accept the reality of the situation, the way you feel, the way you are, the way your behavior is, before you can do anything about it. And this then took us to a key point that really influenced the rest of the conversation. We don't want our self-awareness to make us more inhibited. We want it to make us more free. Even if what we're doing is applying some top-down control so we inhibit some problematic behaviors out in the world, that often creates the space for positive behaviors to become more free themselves. We then close the episode by talking about some ways that people can deliberately develop 
more self-awareness. And Rick gave a lot of advice here. I'm not going to cover it all, but he pointed to a couple of key practices. The first is developing the moment-to-moment capacity for mindfulness. The second is various forms of interoception, feeling into the body, particularly somatically. And then third, leaning into inviting forward aspects of ourself that we've pushed away over time. And he used this lovely metaphor of somebody sitting at a campfire and inviting forward all of the little animals that exist on the periphery of the shadows. It's a very Rick kind of metaphor, very soft and fuzzy, but I think that it's a useful way to think about it, where we all have these different aspects of our personality. The IFS model, Internal Family Systems, does a really good job of talking about this and personifying it in ways that can be helpful for people. And so a really fundamental question is, which of those aspects are we leaning into, and which are the ones that we have pushed to the periphery of our awareness? And becoming more self-aware often involves a process by which we become more aware of the parts that we've pushed to the side. I had a great time recording this episode with Rick. If you enjoyed it, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even leave a comment, a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, you can tell a friend about it. It's probably the best way that we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. This includes things like transcriptions of the episodes, ad-free versions of our episodes, and expanded show notes, where I go into a lot of detail about the topics that we explore and the research and prep that goes into each episode. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.